Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. Turn your copy of God's Word to the Lucan Gospel, the second chapter. Last Sunday, we began a 13-week series through Luke's Gospel. If you missed last Sunday, please go to the web and print it off, watch it, listen to it, whatever you would choose to do. I'm asking you to be committed to taking in every one of these sermons. We will end on Easter Sunday, and so we're in sermon number two. If you missed number one, catch up as we journey through the Lucan gospel together. Today we're in Luke chapter two, that familiar birth story, verses one through 20. Have you ever been in charge of planning a really big, momentous occasion? A wedding, a class reunion, a grand opening. Last year, I was in charge of planning the wedding for our oldest daughter, Ryan. I tried to make the wedding as memorable as I possibly could. The wedding included 1,200 pieces of wedding cake and six different flavors. You've been there. You've planned a wedding. The planning, the preparation were spread over a year of managing all the emotions. Well, there were contracts and photographers and videographers and soloists and caterers and bands and venues and hotels and registry books and cake decorators and ushers and florists and groomsmen and bridesmaids, etc., etc., etc. The notebook is like that for one single wedding. Well, what could be bigger than planning the arrival? of the Son of God. Can you imagine being in charge of planning the birth of Jesus? Well, can you imagine planning a, a cosmic event like the coming of the Christ? How would we have planned for his birth? The birth of the Bethlehem baby, the Son of God, the Savior. Well, I'm sure that I would have planned for the Son of God to be born in Jerusalem, the, the wonderful city. In fact, I would have planned it where he was in, within the shadow of the temple itself if I were in charge. And certainly, you probably would have chosen a king and a queen to be the parents, or at least a priestly lineage like John the Baptist. That long-awaited Christ, the holy child, trumpets would have blared and royal decrees declared that he has arrived, that last the prince of peace. God, however, wrote the script in a most unlikely and unpredictable way. Common characters like carpenter and shepherds they star in the story of the birth of the Messiah. The authenticity of the Lucan account is surely certain because humanity would have never woven together the story like this. Any human fabrication of the event would have been magnificent and far-fetched indeed. When Luke writes last week, he summarized the birth of John the Baptist he gave him two verses, verses 57 and verse 58. 
Today, he gives a much longer narrative, more fully develops the birth, not of the forerunner, but of the Christ, the Son of God himself. And how does he come? In the midst of poverty, to those who are powerless, Luke takes us as readers on an unlikely journey as he leads us to Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, for the most unusual humble birth. We're going to split Luke 1 through 20 in two large sections, and I'll, I'll subhead some other sections for you if you like, and you can print this off tomorrow on the web. The largest section being traveling up to Bethlehem, verses 1 through 7. Traveling up to Bethlehem, 1 through 7. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. And there was first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, every one to his own city. God's people were oppressed. There's one word that describes these first three verses. It's oppressed. I kind of subtitle it this way, counting heads to collect coins. Counting heads to collect coins. The Jews resented and loathed being taxed by the occupational government, Rome. These opening verses, Luke reminds God's people that they are political prisoners in their own land. They have to pay the taxes to a foreign occupational government. The Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, is counting heads so later he can count the taxes. It's actually Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus, adopted by his great uncle, Julius Caesar. He treated Octavius as both his adopted son and the heir to the throne. And Augustus is actually not a name. It's a title. It means something like divine or majestic or, or shining. It was given to Octavius in 27 B.C. by the Roman Senate. Caesar Augustus, the shining one, the divine one. Well, he gives us another political name here, doesn't he? Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, governor of Syria between A.D. 6 and 7. Now, some of you who really listened last week might be saying, now, wait a minute, we've got a problem. Because last week we learned that all this was placed during the time in the reign of Herod, which ended in 4 B.C. And Quirinius is governor in A.D. 6 and 7. So we're about 10 years off here. How can it be that it both happened during the time of Herod the Great, which ends at 4 B.C., and also while Quirinius is governor in A.D. 6? Well, there's actually been an inscription found in Antioch that says that Quirinius had other positions. He was kind of the, the viceroy uh, to, to the emperor. And that the name used for governor here is actually a larger word that can mean several political offices. So, indeed, there's no conflict. Herod the Great was there, and Quirinius was there during these days. Now, the sentence itself was a reminder that you had to do what the government told you to do. 
Uh, those of you who pay quarterly taxes, they'll be due on Tuesday. That is a reminder. Taxes remind us that someone is governing over us, does it not? Well, in fact, four times he mentions this census in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 5. Census, 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 census. Rome is in charge and you are not. It happens by royal degree. It is an imperial edict. The pagan people are counting the heads of God's people so they can count the coins. Taxes. Next little section, verses 4 and 5, registering is required. Registering is required. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. As a result of the decree of Caesar Augustus, Joseph and the expecting mother Mary travel to Bethlehem where Jesus will be born. We can't help but be reminded that in last week's sermon in chapter 1, Luke tells us that Jesus' reign will have no end. And yet the ruler, the king who's made this decree, Caesar Augustus, his reign will end shortly in AD 14. So Mary carrying the king whose reign will have no end is ordered by the king whose reign is shortly to end to go to pay the taxes. Now, being a descendant of David, Joseph has to travel to the city of David. Now, if you notice, Luke is a master narrative writer. He tells us that we're going up and that we're going to the city of David. Now, if you know your Old Testament, every time you're going up, you're going where? To Jerusalem. And what does 2 Samuel and 2 Kings call the city of David? Jerusalem. So the first time you read this, you think you've got it. The Son of God will come right where I expect him to be born. We're going our way up. We're going to the city of David. Well, I know where we're going. Say no more. We're going to Jerusalem. But notice how he spins it. That expectation of the great city is ended when he tells us Bethlehem, verse 4, is a birthplace. Like David, Jesus, the last king of the Davidic covenant, is born in Bethlehem. Had not the prophet Micah said so long ago, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Now Mary goes with Joseph. That's sort of uncommon. Women were not required to make the journey for the head count for the census to collect the coins. Why does Mary go? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Mary join Joseph on this very hard journey being great with child? My guess is, well, we, we have evidence in the Gospel of John that the townspeople had another explanation for Mary's pregnancy, and it had nothing to do with her virginity. If she had been left alone in Nazareth, she would have been the subject of caustic and harsh gossip 
And perhaps when the, the baby's birth seems so close, she doesn't want to be left behind without Joseph. Verses 6 for 7, settling for a stable. Settling for a stable. Now, I'm going to read this a little differently than you're used to having it read. And if it bothers you, it bothers you. And you can read it however you want to read it. But I'm going to read it differently than you're used to having it read. 6 and 7. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. No room for him in the end. Well, here's the difference. Luke likens the birth of Jesus to the birth of an ordinary peasant baby born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. He's wrapped in bands of cloth. Perhaps it is soothing sense of security. And thus Luke is implying that he is like all other mortals. The baby Jesus being fully human, incarnate, God in flesh, is wrapped in cloths for security. And maybe there's a foreshadowing of the end of Luke's gospel when he is wrapped in burial cloths. Do you see it? He's bound as a baby. He'll be bound at the end of the gospel. But here's where I see it a little bit differently. How many plays have we seen where they go and they knock at the end and the end is empty? They go the next end and the end is empty. The word used here really isn't the technical word for end. The word here is cataluma and it's the word for the guest room. And in fact, in Luke chapter 10, it is used exactly that way and interpreted as a guest room. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, there's another technical word that means in. So I'm going to read it this way. The average peasant house in antiquity had one roof. And under that roof were two rooms raised up on a platform. You had the kitchen and the place where the family slept. And then you had a guest room on the platform. And then below, under the same roof, you had the animals. It, everybody was on the same roof. People and animals alike, the, the people were just raised on a platform. And so going from family member to family member, being from having the lineage from Bethlehem, they go to everywhere. Maybe they did check an in or two, but that's not the word used here. There is no cataluma. There is no guest room left in any of the family's houses. And so they leave the high platform. They go below to where the animals are. At this time of year, the animals are probably out in the field. And so there is no room for them in the cataluma. There is no room for them in the guest room. And then he tells us about the manger being there. Best translated, a feeding trough is there. The Savior who will die a shameful death on a wooden cross finds his beginning in a mundane manger, a feeding trough. Martin Hingle notes, his head rests where cattle have fed. Think of the, the import of that statement. The Son of God, his head rests where cattle have fed. Now we come to the second big movement in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. Verses 8 through 20, declaring good news. Declaring good news. Verses 8 and 9, I, I subtitle this way, Watching the Flocks. Look at 2 8. 
And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Now, Luke has already given us hints that shepherds were in our future. How many times in chapter 1 and chapter 2 has he mentioned David, lineage of David, family of David? What was David? A shepherd. And also he's mentioned earlier, turn back to chapter 1 and verse 52, he's mentioned the lowly, Mary does in her song. God has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. God has brought rulers down from their throne and exalted those who are humble. Back to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There was no one, there was no one as lowly as a shepherd. We sort of romanticized our interpretation of a shepherd, but the way they were depicted at this time was something like a gypsy. They traveled around, they were ceremoniously unclean, they weren't allowed in the temple area, and they just were the bad guys of society. The guys who could do nothing else became shepherds. God is bringing the message to the lowly. God is bringing the message to the shepherds. Ironically, Luke's selection of lowly characters such as shepherds foreshadows the fact that Jesus is bringing the message to sinners and outcasts. At this, the very beginning of his story, it is those who are marginalized who receive the message first, and then what are they calling the one who, who eats with publicans and sinners? The shepherds were the first ones to hear the good news. The shepherds were generally out in their fields from March to November. And I'll, I'll tell you, December's a great month to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but there is nothing in any birth narrative that gives us a month or some way to say that this is a particular month or day that Jesus was born. And all of a sudden, Luke gives us that wonderful contrast between the lowly, gypsy-like shepherds who were out in the fields. Well, they are followed up by an angel. And the angel is nameless because he doesn't matter. It is only the message that matters that they bring. Now, this is the third, you've been counting them, I hope, the third angelic visitation in Luke's gospel. The first one was to whom? To Zacharias. And Zacharias was told that his wife was going to have a baby. And he says, can't happen, we're too old. And the angel of the Lord says, well, let me show you and you won't speak. You remember that? And then the second angelic visitation is to Mary, who is told that she has found favor with God. Remember that? So now we're at number three. We got these very busy angels. Number three, it is the proclamation here. The shepherds are out in their field, and this nameless angel brings us the great proclamation. Notice, the glory of the Lord is shining round about. 
The glory of the Lord is associated with the traveling tabernacle of God. Or more specifically, the glory of the Lord is associated in the Old Testament with the presence of the holiness of God in the temple. But on this occasion, the glory of the Lord is not with the tabernacle and not with the temple. It is out in nowhere with nobody with shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. Look at verses 10 and 12, including all people including all people. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now, if you're counting fear knots, we're at number three, aren't we? If an angel came to visit you or me, you'd be afraid too. And you'd hope the first two words he would say are, you know it's a good, going to go well when he says, fear not. Zacharias, fear not. I got good news. Mary, fear not, for you have found favor with God. Shepherds, fear not. Behold, I give you good news of great joy, which is for all people everywhere. The word for good news here is euangelion. It is the idea of a Roman, an heir is born. It's the announcement of euangelion, good news. Uh, 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 an heir ascends to the throne. It's euangelion, it's good news. Isaiah uses it this way. Isaiah verse, chapters 40 through 46. It concerns the arrival of God and the saving reign of peace of God amongst the poor. Peace Injustice, euangelion. Notice the good news comes today. For today in the city of David, that word today means you don't have to wait. The good news is here. It's now. That word today connects the prophecy of old with the future. It happened today. Today. I've told you before about the little boy in the church play who was the angel of proclamation and he had those lofty lines the volunteer director had worked with him that he would learn those lines fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people everywhere for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord and this shall be a sign to you you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger that's a lot for me to say much less a five-year-old it's a lot it, it came time the spotlight shone right upon him, and he needed to say those lines, those proclamation lines. He just couldn't get them out. His mama had worked with him. The director had worked with him. So he just put it in his own words, and he said, Boy, have I got some good news for you. <laughs> Euangelion. Boy, have I got some good news for you. For today, the Christ has been born. You don't have to wait anymore. The Messiah is among us. That's the gospel, isn't it? The good news that the Savior has at last arrived for all people. And I want you to notice specifically the description, the good news of great joy. For today in the city of David... There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, what I want you to see is already in Luke's gospel, the word Savior has been used of God. It's used in the Old Testament of God. 
God, Yahweh, is the Savior. Mary has already sung about her Savior. Mary declared that her soul, her soul exalts in Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. This baby is the Savior. That means he's God. This baby is the Christ. That was the word used for kings along the line of David, the anointed one, the holy one of Israel. He is God. He is God's anointed, and he is the Lord. A word Mary has already used in her song about Yahweh. Make no mistake about the highness of this identification. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a, a Savior, God who is Christ, Son of God, the Lord, he is the Kyrios. Well, it's the third time in the infancy narrative now we've been given a sign. Zacharias couldn't speak, that was a sign. Elizabeth got pregnant, that was a sign. And now they have the sign, another physical sign of the manger. The babe wrapped in a manger. We'll look at verse 13 and 14, declaring peace. And suddenly there appeared to the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angel of the Lord is now accompanied by a heavenly host. What does the word host mean? The host is a description of an army. Yahweh's host, he is the Lord of what? The Lord of hosts. And yet, there's something different about this army. This army is made up of angels. And this army of angels brings peace, not war. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Hebrew shalom, peace. Now the shepherds respond four ways. They go, they see, they rejoice, they share. They go, they see, they rejoice, and they share. We close out with gathering her thoughts, verses 15 through 20. It came about that the angels had gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds began saying to one another, let us go. See, the first thing to do is go. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They came in haste, and they, they found the way to Mary and Joseph, I've always loved this verse. Do you like it? They, they came in a hurry, and it's just like the angel said. There's Mary and Joseph, and I love the last line, and the baby, and he lay in the manger. This shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. So it's reported back, the baby's in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known. So they go, they see. Notice they, they also share. The statement which had been told them about this Christ, and all who heard it wondered the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. One biblical scholar equates Mary with the parable of the souls, that she's the good soul, that the seed of the gospel, through perseverance, it takes root and it produces much fruit. 
Luke begins his orderly account with a most unexpected story. God's angel has finally proclaimed the good news that the Savior, the Christ, the Lord today is here. And it's good news for Israel, but it's also good news for all people everywhere. It's unlikely, isn't it? A poor carpenter, a teenage bride, in Bethlehem, which has no acclaim, that shepherds would hear the message first. That despite his royalty, his kingly descent of David, the only garment he has to wear is scrap claws wrapped around him that remind us one day he'll be wrapped for burial. Unlikely. Unlikely place. Unlikely time. Unlikely parents. And yet the angels gather in mass to make known to us God is here today. Let us pray. Oh God, it is good news of great joy. And thanks for not letting us plan the birth of the Christ child. We would have done it so differently and so wrong. That when creator became one with creation, he did it in a most unlikely way. And he works in our lives and our hearts in unlikely ways. Oh God, perhaps there's someone watching by way of television today. And today is her day to say, yes, he is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. He will be all those things to me. Maybe there are others who want to come and be a part of this body of faith. To choose First Baptist as church family. However you would lead us, O oh God, may we be obedient in response. Amen.